A new luxury high-rise goes up in a lower-income neighborhood in South L.A. Based off the consensus in the research literature, you would expect rents in nearby apartments to A, rise significantly in price, leading to displacement of neighboring renters, B, not have much of an effect on neighboring rents, or C, lower rents because you're adding new supply to the neighborhood. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. Um... Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, dad and housing journalist with Cal Matters. And I'm Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today on the podcast, supply skepticism. Does building more houses actually result in decreased prices? What if everybody's been wrong this whole time? Yeah. Has everything that I've been taught in every econ class I've ever Mm -hmm. taken complete crap? We'll find out. (laughs) Sponsored by the Wharton School of Business. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So what spurred this episode um, was a recently released study from a doctoral student at MIT that throws at least the possibility of cold water on attempts to build more housing around transit. Yeah, so uh, this piece looked at Chicago. is written by uh, student uh, Yona Freemark uh, about Chicago. Taking a look at what happened in the city after um, the city decided to upzone or increase allowable building uh, near transit stops. Um, a uh, approach to solving housing issues that may sound near and dear to our readers. Indeed, or listeners, as, as the uh, case may be. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, we're still working on getting transcripts for all of you uh, to read. Uh-huh. We've had that request, actually. Yeah. Um, and we actually have, again, the perfect guest uh, to talk about that. Yeah, it's Yona, the guy who wrote the It's st- the guy the who wrote the study. Yeah. Yes. And we spent an hour with him. You're not going to hear all of that. <laughs> Because <laughs> it got real, real technical at some points. Yeah. Um, but there were, there's an abbreviated version, and I'm happy to answer questions about the longer interview with him. It's a good interview. Yeah. And uh, and thanks to Yona for calling in from France. Yes. Mm-hmm. Our first uh, our first interview from France. Yeah. And we have a second guest, too. Yeah. Uh, this is a UCLA professor, Michael Lenz, who has written and thought about these same issues uh, in California. A former professor of mine and a supporter of Senator Scott Wiener's bill to allow more building around transit otherwise known as SB50. Now to the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. It is... The avocado of the fortnight. And the avocado of the fortnight. Uh, last fortnight took us to Cupertino, which we've been to a few times. This bi-weekly look at the most absurd housing story, or one of the most absurd housing stories in California, um, takes us to another frequent location for avocados of the fortnight, Marin County. So this fortnight, we have a winner from California's housing crisis. Ooh. Ooh. All right. Should I do, not do that? Yeah, go for it. I don't <laughs> think it's that bad. I don't think he's ever going to be on the podcast anyway, so. So uh, we have someone who, in 2011, purchased a property in Kentfield, city in Marin, for $2.2 million. This is a two-story home. More than 4,000 square feet, mid-century modern, five bedrooms, six baths, sitting near uh, in the, the Kent Woodlands, walls of glass, San Francisco, skyline views of San Francisco. You can see the bay. It's a nice house. Mount Tamalpais. Got oh, that. Pronounced that right this time. There you go. There we go. Uh, and so, cool house, right? 
Yep. So this person uh, and uh, their family uh, just put this house on the market for um, under six, just under six million dollars. That's a pretty good return. Pretty good return. And this person, like many from living in the Bay Area, decided to make a move to Sacramento. So uh, assuming that this uh, that this uh, home gets sold uh, at the price that that they, that they want, they would more than double, more than double what they did, what they uh, 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 spent. Seven years ago. Yes, that's a much stronger return than what's been going on in my Vanguard fund. Yes, mine too. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Downer. Yeah. Um, Liam, do we know who this person is? We, indeed we do, Matt. It is California Governor Gavin Newsom. I mean, to a certain extent, this I don't blame him for this no, in any way. No, this, this is the way the world works. This is the way the world works here yeah. in California. That's at least, right. Right. Yep. You mm-hmm. can more than double your money in a what seven year period? Seven year period or uh, eight? Eight I year guess. period. Yeah, eight year period. Um, if you own the right house at the right time. Yep. Um, to let's just broaden it a little bit more. Like, do you think the fact that he's a rich homeowner has any effect on his stance on various uh, housing policies? I don't think it affects his stance. I think he and I think certainly as we've talked, um, he's been much more aggressive uh, on this issue and takes this exactly. issue much more to heart than the prior governor, Jerry Brown. I would that, agree. That being said, I do think there is some um, concern, some legitimate and some others, that as someone who is a you know wealthy homeowner from Marin County, um, or has been that, a place that has a pretty poor record um, on affordable housing for a long time, uh, you know, leads to some criticism about the way that he might feel um, the housing crisis compared to people who are actually really struggling. That's right. And in fairness to Governor Newsom, that same criticism could be levied to a ton of the legislators Absolutely. that are that are here making specific decisions right. on housing policy that don't feel the housing crunch in the way that a majority of Californians might feel it. Exactly. Um, and they get less attention. Okay. Uh, now to the meat of our podcast. Supply skepticism. Does building more housing actually result in good outcomes? Right. That's a that's a that's even a broader way of th- of thinking of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So let's let's put a little bit of context in this. Um, you know, we mentioned the governor. I think he's the best example of it. Right. Um, there's a, a long held view that in order for California to become more affordable, there has to be a, a, a tremendous increase in building. Um, and you know, the governor uh, himself has called for. Uh, three and a half million new units to be built by 2025, which is an insane amount of building compared to uh, really uh, any modern history in in, in California. So the argument essentially is um, there's not enough housing for people who, who are currently living here or who want to live here. And in order for those prices to go down, you need a, need a lot more of it. And so uh, there are a lot of policy levers that the public can do or things. And, and that's what's focused on to, to try to ensure that more building would occur. And... Why do people not believe that? I think that people don't believe it because they see new building going on now that's not really helpful for them. Yeah. I, I mean, there are a lot of reasons, but I think that's sort of the most visceral. Yeah. You know, you see your crane in San Francisco. You see your crane in downtown Los Angeles. You see your crane anywhere, really. And you're living in that city and you think to yourself that new housing that's going up is not for me. It's for, it's for people who are much wealthier than I am. I thought it would be worthwhile to frame the discussion we're about to have. With a email from one of our listeners, because I thought it articulated this issue in a very eloquent way. 
I'm not going to say the name because I haven't cleared it with this person. I'm just going to read the email. But I will say this person is a, or at least at the time they wrote this email, was a, a UCLA uh, Master's of Public Policy student, which was, uh, that's the master's degree that I have. Um, and I shall read. Hey, Matt. So she just emailed me. <laughs> Longtime listener slash reader. First time writer. I really appreciate the reporting that you're doing on housing in California, and the podcast you and Liam Dillon are doing is great. Thank you. I'm a quantitative-focused Master's of Public Policy student, and it drives me nuts when people react negatively to the argument that in the long term, more housing would relieve the housing crisis. But it also drives me nuts when I hear people make this argument simplistically, because there's more nuance to how it would play out in the policy-slash-real world. Can you guys do a deep dive on the podcast and break it down? That's perfect. Here we are. <laughs> About to dissatisfy you in so many different <laughs> ways. <laughs> but I, I think that framing is perfect. The, the debate often gets polarized where people just build, build, build. Right. And it's like, well, it's a little more complicated that. And then the, yeah. the other side is don't put up a high rise here because it's going to ruin everyone's life. Right. Not right. going to help anyone. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So let's let's talk about first before we get to the MIT study, which does yeah. touch on that. Yeah. Um, let's talk about first the general kind of research literature, what is empirically out there um, on the relationship between building new housing and price. Yeah. So there's another good paper that we should uh, point everybody to, and yeah. sort of the 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 framework through which I'll be talking a little bit. Um, it's from a, a bunch of folks over at uh, New York University, NYU, and this paper was also released relatively recently and is available um, for free online. And it's titled uh, Supply Skepticism, Housing Supply and Affordability. And it tries to take seriously a bunch of the arguments that a number of groups make about whether, um, you know, building more actually makes things more affordable. Yes. And they come with a conclusion, and I'll just sort of, you know, read from uh, kind of the abstract here. Uh, We ultimately conclude from both theory and empirical evidence that adding new homes moderates price increases and therefore makes housing more affordable to low and moderate income families. So, And they also argue, too, that, like, it's not just about um, helping existing, you know, uh, low and moderate income families with new housing, but new housing also generates a bunch of economic benefits from allowing people who might otherwise not be able to come to your city or your region to do that and and, uh, with 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 new jobs, too. Right. Exactly. As well as ancillary. uh, Well, ancillary is not the right word, but positive externalities in in econ uh, lenses. Right. Like reductions in carbon emissions. Right. Stuff that isn't related to your rent or the price of a single family home, but is a social economic good. Right. Right. Part of the the issue here with supply skeptics is most of the studies that that actually look at this uh-huh. what they're really trying to measure is or what they should be trying to measure is what is the difference between the rent increase or home price increase um that you would have had without new construction versus what you have with the new construction as opposed to what is just the overall rent increase uh-huh. right so uh-huh. the, that counterfactual nature that's kind of inherent to this research you're comparing it against a hypothetical right right that's and that is what is difficult i think for a lot of people to to understand yeah 
Yeah. And I think, too, you know, and, and I encourage you to read the paper for because I do think maybe from that abstract, my reading of that abstract, you may not think that they take a lot of these arguments against supply seriously. But I really do think that they try very hard to, to make that case. I think also it, 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 it makes sense. And the paper addresses this in terms of talking about what might happen at a regional level or an aggregate level as opposed to what happens right next to you. Yes. You know, um, and I think there should be, you know, the research generally in this and, and other um other literature says that at sort of this aggregate level, at the regional level, say the entire Bay Area or the, all of Southern California, if you build a lot more supply, that would help uh, prices in, um, uh, you know, across that region, right, ameliorate concerns about rising prices. But at, in, say, South Los Angeles or in, say, the mission in, in San Francisco, there's a lot less research that is shown about what uh, might happen in that particular neighborhood if there is a big increase, particularly in market rate development. The, the, the Chicago study, the MIT study, touches on that as well, I think. Yeah. Um, and that is something that I think um, people who are these build baby build kind of folks need to be really sensitive to because we're not just talking – people don't live uh, – when they think about where they live, they think about the neighborhood they live. They, yes. may, they may think about it in terms of the broader region, but the most – Visceral effects again um, happens to be what happens to what happens next door to them. Yes, and th- there is, and we talk about this with Michael Lenz, the professor from UCLA, who again is a supporter of uh, SB fifty. Um, the the literature specifically around what happens in a block where new a new building goes up, ten blocks, yeah, a ten block radius where a new building goes up. The literature on displacement. And gentrification around that is much more nuanced and mixed than I think a lot of people realize. Exactly. There, there are papers out there saying you can find a paper out there that says, you know what, prices actually go down. There, this, this, you know, in, in this specific location, they built new market rate housing, and we saw because of the additional supply in a local context, prices goes down. Prices should, go down, and you see the opposite too. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it is it is more nuanced, which I think is to the frustration of. A lot of people who are who are living through it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's turn to the to the MIT the study we're calling both Chicago and MIT, which we promise I know, is the it'll same. Be very thing. confusing. Yeah, but it's the same study, and so um, this took a look at uh, zoning changes in Chicago uh, over a period of time. Uh, Matt, why don't you describe what the city did? Sure. So uh, in 2013, uh, Mayor Rahm Emanuel. Um, decided, hey, we got all these rail stations. Um, let's allow more density. So more, I'm just going to completely oversimplify this, more apartments per parcel, let's say. Okay. Um, apartments per piece of land, right, okay. mm-hmm. um, than we used to have. Sure. Um, in other words, upzoning. Yeah. Um, and he also said, let's waive some of the parking requirements that we have that we typically mandate uh, new developments build. Yeah. Right. So that was 2013. Yeah. And then two years later. And then two years later, they said, hey, we think this is working. I guess, you know, this study hadn't come out yet. <laughs> uh, we think this is working. We're going to expand the number of uh, pieces of land that this law applies to. And we're going to we're going to let you build even denser. too. Right. Mm-hmm. So as a byproduct of that, a natural ex- 
policy experiment happened, a, a miracle in the uh, policy research literature industrial complex. Right, because we're going to actually look at what a real-world example of something that actually happened was. Exactly. And so uh, this uh, uh, researcher, Yona Freemark, um, took a look at what happened and, and uh, over, you know, since the, these upzonings occurred and, and what did. What sure. did you find? So it, I, I want to just quickly get into why this study is um, unique. And it is the the treatment and control portion of this. So similar to actually that rent control study we talked about um, from Stanford from Stanford last yeah. year, right? You in in a lot of the studies around the effect of zoning changes on prices and or construction, um, you, you it's really hard to do an apples to apples analysis, right? Here um, you have. The apartments that were the the pieces of land that were subject to the 2013 ordinance, right? And then you have the pieces of land that were subject to the 2015 ordinance. They're all around Chicago. They're of different democrat demographic and neighborhood characteristics, right? Um, and the only thing that is really different is the fact that some got this density boost in 2013 and some got it in 2015. And that's that's how you're able to parse out okay. What is the effect of the density boost on those 2013 units versus the 2015 uh-huh. units? Uh-huh. So uh-huh. that's the big innovation here. That's why people have taken this study a little bit more seriously than than other studies. Yeah. Okay. And what were the results? Yeah. What did he find? So the the headline takeaways: one, he found a st- he found a significant increase in the land value of those properties that were upzoned. So what what does that mean in real terms, right? That means, and he actually isolated this, if you owned a condo, right, the value of that condo or what you sold that condo for went up mostly because the zoning law changed. That was one one of the main takeaways, right? Uh The magnitude of that is important, and we'll probably get to that in a little bit. The other really interesting part here is he found no increase in actual construction, no increase in permits for new buildings to be built um, because of the of the zoning change. Yeah. So right? let's, let's let's be clear about what this says. This says the results are kind of the exact opposite of what people think is good. Yes. Right? So we were giving more value by this, doing this, gave more value to people who own existing pieces of property with that. And they didn't share that value by building new construction that would have housed more people. And so we're basically this, 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 and this is over, oversimplifying. The results suggest that we kind of gave all this value to people without the society getting anything in return in terms of more construction, in terms of more affordability, in terms of anything. Yes. And, and not only that, but those two findings are somewhat contradictory when you really think about it. Exactly. Right? Yeah. The, the fact that you do see the market saying, OK, we think this land is more valuable now because right. you can build higher and more densely on it. But not actually but do that. But nobody's doing that. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. which, which raises a ton of interesting questions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So okay, so we found these things that sound bad, um, but so so how good is this study, and what are potentially some of the limitations with it? Okay, so I don't think you can just dismiss the study as NIMBY propaganda, which some people have. Yeah, um, I and I I don't think you can do that just one purely on the study's merits, but then two how it's been received yeah. in the kind of urban planning community. I right. mean, we talked about this with Michael Lenz, yeah. right? Yeah, he thinks the study is 
valid. Right. Um, he's just very careful about how you would generalize it. Yeah. There are important limitations that, you know, the author himself acknowledges here, right? One is this this is going to be true of any type of study like this. This is a particular place at a particular point in time, sure, sure, right? Sure. So yeah. this is Chicago, which is not San Francisco, not L.A., right? Um, this is really between 2013 and 2015. So any he controls for a lot of different variables in this, right? Or at least tries to. But there might be things that are unique to that place in that period of time which make this less generalizable than he would probably want. <laughs> that, yeah. that we shouldn't infer that because this happened in this way here, that it can happen... It's going to play out in the exact same way um, in in California, let's say. Sure, sure, sure. And I think um, another thing this sort of highlights is uh, the concern. Uh, well, um, uh, for me, a really big takeaway for this, and maybe we can use this to kind of lead into how this affects kind of policy conversations that are happening here, yeah. very, very important ones, right, that are happening here in the state. But, you know, um, he found, uh, you know, increased land values with, with without increased uh, construction over the sort of two to five year period, right? That he looked at in the, in the study, and that means I think if if any of these sort of policies in California were to pass, people need to be realistic about the uh, potential effects that they that how long it might take for some of these effects to actually show up. Right. If we're hoping for more construction or we're look hoping for uh, more affordability, which would follow more construction potentially, right? Um, that's going to take a long time. Yeah, going to take a long time. And I think this study really does a very good job. If it happens at all, let me caveat that. But if it happens at all, I think this study very, very well points to the fact that the time horizons that we're looking at could 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 be a while. I I think I think that's. I think that's true. I think what the study doesn't do is actually offer any explanation as to why. Yeah. There they're not there isn't really an explanation as to why the construction lagged in the way yeah. it did, right? Yeah. Like cuz there's multiple possibilities there which have very practical policy implications sure. for what, you know, uh, Senator Weiner is trying to do in California, right? Yeah, uh-huh. Was the issue the regulatory process in Chicago, right. getting permits, you know, whoever sure. you have to bribe to get your thing done, <laughs> right? Um, it's Chicago, man. I can make that joke. Okay. Also increasingly true of LA. Uh-huh. Um, so if that's the case, right, then, yeah. then the argument should be, well, the, the, the upzoning needs to be married with that type of regulatory reform or else you're not going to see the, the, the type of construction that you want sure. right mm-hmm. the one of the other important limitations here is that it, the the actual properties that he looks at it's not a it's not just single family homes right in fact not a single family homes at all no single family homes at all right. so we are not talking about what would happen in north berkeley right. around the bart station which right. is just single family homes so let's we could talk about sort of the practical and yeah. political impacts of this yes. on the conversation here in california you know as as we referenced there's a bill working straight through the legislature uh from senator weiner that would uh, allow for uh, four to five story um apartments and condos near transit stops across the state uh and so um i think there are both both political and practical implications of this study on that debate that it really should be considered. Practically, um, I think the the um, study does make a case uh, of of paying significant attention to some of the concerns that were raised last year by a lot of equity advocates uh, for 
the idea that just increasing density or just upzoning is um, not going to necessarily solve all the problems that you think it, it, it will without taking into account the effects that that decisions might have at particularly neighborhood level on displacement and gentrification. Yeah. And so there are certainly, and we've talked about these before, I'm sure we'll get to them again, uh, kind of tenant protections in Wiener's bill now. But I think this study points again to the sensitivity to those issues that are really um, need to be there if we don't need, if we don't want to see some of the negative effects um, uh, of displacement and gentrification that might, that might occur from upzoning. I was told by a staffer that, um, they were excited for the, they were excited for this study because they know their member doesn't really want to vote for SB fifty. Uh-huh. And this so, would be so great a, to take cover a, on. A legislative staffer yes, said their 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 assembly member or senator Right. Yes. 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 Could mm-hmm. be either. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. That this study provides political could provide political cover for them. Yes, so, and yeah. that's sort of the political the political argument for this is you say, look, uh, your solution is not going to work, or or your solution may not work, or we're concerned about whether it's going to work, and you know, and I'm waving I'm waving now the study. You are um, here, and here's why, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, how big a deal is this study in terms of the likelihood that SB fifty actually passes? Uh, uh, well, um, I think it adds to the debate that was already there and already going to be pressing. And I think, as we've talked about before, there are a lot of these issues surrounding um, equity concerns that people seem to agree Senator Wiener is paying more attention to than perhaps he did last year. Uh, but they're, they're, the, qu- the answers aren't necessarily in the bill yet. So, for instance, um, there's not an answer on the minimum uh, uh, amount of housing that developers would need to set aside for low-income people uh, if they were to build a project near near transit under this law. Uh, that's going to be a huge fight, uh, I imagine, and you know one that um, this study could inform, right? Um, and I think I think that's sort of where this these fights are going to happen anyway over these issues, and this just adds sort of another log on on the fire of those. And with that, let's um, actually talk to our guests. We're here with Professor Michael Lenz, a former professor of mine, who's an associate professor of urban planning and public policy at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. Did I get all that right, Mike? That's correct. Perfect. A for me. (laughs) I think that's what you got in the course, right? I I honestly can't remember. Yeah. Not that your course wasn't incredibly important to me. That means you learned a whole lot. Yes. (laughs) Grades don't matter in graduate school. No, they don't. They really don't. So uh, I thought we could actually begin um, with a little multiple choice quiz, because I think there's a lot of confusion out there over what the research in housing policy actually empirically demonstrates to be true and what might be a little more muddled or nuanced than people expect. Are you okay with this gimmick? And please say yes. (laughs) I'm okay. All right. Question number one. A new luxury high-rise goes up in a lower-income neighborhood in South L.A. Based off the consensus in the research literature, you would expect rents in nearby apartments to A. Rise significantly in price, leading to displacement of neighboring renters, B. Not have much of an effect on neighboring rents, or C. Lower rents because you're adding new supply to the neighborhood. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Um, 
It's, I'm so glad <laughs> I chose to do this. It's a mix of we don't know and it depends. Um, I mean, that, and that's just the worst answer to any multiple choice <laughs> question. That is why I made it multiple D, choice. D, all of the above, right? <laughs> yeah. And zero. <laughs> it's just So that, talk a little bit more about that. Well, so these things are certainly... There's there's a there's a there are a lot of reasons why I can't say what we whether we would know for what we would know for sure right we don't have a great deal of clean empirical results on this it's a very at the neighborhood level trying to understand um, what the connection is between supply and uh, prices or rents is just very, very sticky because supply and demand hit neighborhoods in at the same time sometimes, um, and we're not really able to tease out what is driving increases or decreases in rents um, in a given spot. And then we would, you know, you, you know, uh, as your professor, I have to scold you. <laughs> no, you didn't tell me like what neighborhood we're talking about, right? I, I mean, we South don't LA. know. I said South LA. We did, oh, right. Sorry. Well, but South L.A. is a very big place. Mm. Um, you know, we, we don't know exactly what would happen in South L.A. or in, you know, a smaller piece of South L.A. based on the, even the little empirical literature we have because there's a lot of different um, things that are kind of at least unique to South L.A. or kind of unique mm-hmm. to these smaller neighborhoods within that, within that space. So um, that's, the de- that's the it depends part, right? We don't, you know, we don't know exactly um, what that's going to do in a given place. So I, I have to punt that one. There's mm-hmm. just no way. So, so, but before we get back to Matt's gimmick, which I think is good, um, I, can we drill down a little more on yes. wh- why it is so difficult to understand what happens in individual neighborhoods when you add uh, market rate housing or add uh, low income housing or add uh, or, inc- or change zoning or all of these sorts of kind of policy interventions that are talked about a lot? We know that when people increase supply in a neighborhood, meaning you know a developer comes in and and, and build build something either bigger or newer than what previously existed on that spot of land, that they have an assumption in their mind that there is either a high demand for that thing right now, or there might be high demand for that thing coming soon. Um, And so it's often incredibly hard to tease out what is, um, you know, what is, you know, why that's that supply doesn't come there randomly, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Um, that's that's the fundamental problem: is that landlords, landowners, developers, they're reacting when they make supply decisions. They're reacting to real or perceived um, changes or levels in demand that you know we can't perfectly control for um, um, in the vast majority of, of attempts to, to to study these sorts of things. There's a lot of people out there who will argue, why can't you just say yes? Because every time I see a luxury condo going up, literally in South L.A., I know for a fact my rent's going to rise. The fuller story that, you know, that person who's watching the crane, you know, go to work down the, down the street from their house, out their window, 
Um, the fuller story is, uh, well, it looks like people want to move here, and it looks like um, people are, are going to, if my landlord, you know, runs into uh, some folks with some money that want to move here, like, that person might outbid me for my next lease, right? Um, that's, not necess- that's, not the f- that's not necessarily the direct fault of the new luxury tower that's going up down the street. That luxury tower is more likely an indicator that people want to live near that spot. It's a, it's a symptom, not the cause. That is, it is more, uh, yeah, I would say in, if, if we are going back to a multiple choice and that's, <laughs> my choices are to say yes or no to that statement, I'll say yes. Uh-huh. Well, speaking of saying yes or no to statements, um, uh, you want to move to the second question yeah, yeah, here? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued to see how this is going to go. So. I am yeah. enjoying this more than I should be. Yeah. Um, I'll give you, I'll let you say mostly true or mostly false. Okay, I won't okay. make you say just true or false. Strict zoning laws that ban higher density housing are more to blame for high housing prices in California than rising costs of construction, including labor and materials. Mostly true. All right. Strict zoning laws that ban higher density housing um, are more to blame for high housing prices in California than regulatory barriers not related to zoning. Oh. Oh, I would say probably true, but okay. that's actually something that I'm working on studying with my colleagues here at UCLA, uh, Pavel Monken and Mike Manville. And I guess the way we think of this is um, process, which is more the CEQA, right. regu- you know, other permitting. regulatory barriers, permitting processes um, versus prohibition. And so, yeah. you know, prohibition mm-hmm. saying you can't have anything but a single-family house in this, you know, uh, in this neighborhood. Um, and so I, I think we're getting – there's more and more sources of data to study that. My hunch is mostly true, but, you know, we're – Stay tuned is what you're saying. Yeah, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. And I think you're now obligated to list both me and Liam as co-authors on that <laughs> study, so – Right. Um, up, up our citations here. Um, Acknowledgements okay. at the very least. At the uh, least. No, I want a co-authorship. <laughs> All right. Uh, last, last true or false, mostly true, mostly false. Strict zoning laws that ban higher-density housing uh, are more to blame for high housing prices in California than foreign and institutional investors. True. All right. Not Definitely even, true. Not, not even, even mostly. A, no hesitation there. It's And that, I, I think that... The foreign investment thing is a problem only in a small number of markets and then even a small number of areas within markets. All right. So let, let's move to the, the MIT study. Um, talk about your reaction and what your big takeaways from reading it were, uh, and then also how, if at all, it sort of changed your thinking about these issues. Well, you know, first, uh, you know, I should note that you know, the world of urban planning housing research is small enough that I know Yona personally. Um, and so I know the author. Um, he's a very strong student. Um, I knew this paper before 
you know, what was it, two weeks ago that it, three weeks ago that it came out. I've known this paper for, for months, um, just through the conference circuit and things like that. Um, you know, he again. He's a he's a very very strong student and scholar. Um, but every paper has its limitations. Um, you know, there's a couple clear strengths. He puts together a lot of data that's not exactly sitting around at our fingertips. So in this case, we had two stages of zoning changes um, that you know allowed for uh, buy right development, um, reduced parking requir- requirements, and I think uh, increased density. And all of this was, you know, based on how far you were from uh, transit. We just, you know, looked at a map, found the rail stations, drew some circles around those rail stations, and we can compare the trajectories of land values and construction activity inside and outside those circles. Um, but there are some pieces missing, I think, um, to to that, you know, go in the kind of limitations areas. We probably didn't have enough time to see the construction activity really take shape and really be common and consistent across the affected parcels. And if you don't see the construction activity, then, you know, you're not going to see, like, there, then there's no reason to see any kind of individual uh, downward, individual decreases in condo prices, right? Sure. So mm-hmm. let's take the condo, let's take the condo piece. Like, you know, why would you know why would condos be less expensive if there's no like condo competition down the street, which is right, right, right. What we think supply should do here. Um, so we only saw increases, but then the, then I, I don't have a good explanation and I don't feel like um, the author does for why we saw increases in condo values at all. Um, you know, if the underlying value of a, of the land, I can see that the land underneath the condo like can increase in value at some to some juncture as a response to increases in the amount of uh, units you can put there, but why would an individual condo buyer pay more for something that has the potential to be upselled? Then you add the layer that it's notoriously hard to like assemble a bunch of condo people to like sell at the right time you know if you have a 20 unit condo building how on earth are you going to buy all those people out so that you can build something bigger and better um like that's really hard and really uncommon um so so there are some surprises here uh and i think you know one of the limitations is there's not like great explanations for that for these things conceptually so how do you think this study should inform um, policymakers that are considering plans like this? Well, you know, I think we have to make sure, well, we, we, need, to, we need to make sure that we understand that the affordability benefits of upzoning 
you know, to the extent that they would happen, require that we have more supply. Yeah. Um, so if you don't, if you don't do a good job of incentivizing or allowing more supply um, to absorb any increases in potential land values, um, then you're then you're in trouble. So let's try to make this really practical now. Mike, so last year, you know, you and a bunch of other uh, folks in your profession uh, sent a letter supporting uh, Senator Scott Wiener's SBA 27, which would have uh, upzoned um, around transit uh, statewide. Why was that something that you were supportive of? Well, you know, we, we simply need to build more homes um, in the state uh, and, and, you know, not in every uh, community within the state, but certainly within our, our core metropolitan areas. We need to build more homes. We don't have enough people. We don't have enough homes for the people that want to live here. And our zone capacity in a lot of these cities um, is uh, we're, all, we're, we're heading towards the limits, and these zone capacities have gone down. Um, so by, z- by zone capacity, you mean the amount of units that are allowed under rule, zoning rules uh, to be built? Absolutely. Yeah. Another piece of that is, you know, there's a uh, that zone, you know, restrictive zoning has um, very uh, clear um, and uh, and tragic histories in terms of uh, racial segregation and being kind of a, a proxy for racial um, uh, exclusion um, that has occurred, you know, across the country and was a you know large. Uh, motivating factor between um, protecting neighborhoods and cities uh, in the, you know, in the all-exalted ideal of single-family homes. Um, So I think, you know, the the racial and income segregation, concentrated poverty uh, problems that we have in this country absolutely have one of their, uh, at least a piece of its genesis uh, being due to restrictive zoning. So there were a lot of concerns last year from anti-gentrification groups and some tenant groups um, about the effect that allowing for uh, a significantly more amount of construction in some of the neighborhoods that are currently gentrifying would lead to more displacement. In your opinion, do those concerns, did they have merit? I think that this necessitates that we have uh, stronger tenant protections. You know, if we are if we are concerned about displacement from neighborhoods that are going to absorb increased housing supply, um, whether that housing supply is again a symptom or a cause of of this displacement, um, we need to make sure that we have increased uh, tenant protections um, to uh, kind of act as as insurance against that. Is there anything that we neglected to ask um, that uh, you want to comment on? Uh, no, I mean, I think, like, you know, the state of the research literature on building more housing is, is just, is very, it's very early. Um, you know, we have a lot of conceptual pieces in the economics literature um, that, you know, give a lot of detail on what should happen when housing increases. But, you know, the empirical story is, is very, very hard. And, and so we're, we're still, we're still learning. And, you know, the, the free market piece is, 
you know, one piece of information in an area where we need lots more. Um, so we can't place too much importance on one study. Um, that, that would always be a problem, especially, uh, but especially on a question that's so hard to answer empirically. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Lentz. I give you a A-. I'll take that. We're here with Yona Freemark, who is a doctoral candidate in city planning at MIT and the author of the study that we've been talking about for much of this episode. Uh, Yona is calling in from France uh, over Skype. So thanks so much, Yona, for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Our first uh, international guest on the podcast, at least to our recollection and knowledge. <laughs> it's very exciting. <laughs> so, Yona, why, why don't you t- start by telling us why you decided to undertake a study like this? Absolutely. So, I was actually living and working in Chicago for uh, about four years uh, between 2013 and 2016 uh, before I started my doctoral studies at MIT. And a lot of my work had to do with uh, promoting uh, good planning, trying to encourage more density, actually, around our transit system. And as a result, as part of that work, I actually was a big proponent of upzoning around much of the city. Uh, And when I got to MIT, I thought, well, you know, I might as well take advantage of some of the new skills I was learning uh, to really start to investigate just how effective uh, the upzoning had been because I had a sense that it had done some good things because I saw construction around much of the city. Uh, but I wanted to be able to quantify that and, and analyze it in detail. So that's kind of what got me started in, in doing this investigation. Um, can you tell us kind of specifically what changes to Chicago housing regulations you studied and then why your study is a little bit different than a lot of studies that we've seen that try to get at the relationship between supply, zoning, and pricing. Right, exactly. So most of the studies that have been done on uh, the effect of things like increases in housing production or availability of housing on affordability of housing are done at the metropolitan level. In other words, they say, what how does the New York region compare to the Los Angeles region uh, in terms of the generally allowed uh, zoning, in terms of land use regulations, and then how does that compare uh, with the affordability of the housing? And this is very interesting because it's produced some useful research that shows that in regions with regulations that essentially make it a little more difficult to build more densely, housing costs are generally a bit higher. So there's an association between land use regulations being a bit tighter and higher amounts of regulation. Higher amount, but what I'm trying to... Yeah, you mean, go yeah. ahead. Uh, you said uh, association between more regulation and then and then higher costs, right? Yeah, higher okay. costs for, yeah, yeah. for a lot of housing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the problem with these types of studies is they don't actually look at the mechanism that we often talk about when we want when we talk about changing how zoning policy works, which is upzoning or downzoning. So changing what is allowed to be built in specific places. Because metropolitan areas, of course, are made up of many different municipalities that act in many different ways and that have zoning policies that they develop independently. Most zoning changes in the US 
occur in reaction to a development proposal or plan. So essentially, a developer comes forward and says, I want to build something bigger than I'm allowed to right now, so I want to ask for a zoning change. And then they get a zoning change. But the problem is, you can't really study that kind of zoning change and see whether it had any effect because uh, the sort of independent variable is the same as the dependent variable in that case. And I know I just use sort of academic language, but essentially yes, what I my mean My mom is... would be confused by endogeneity, <laughs> but that's not a term my mom would know. No offense to my mom. You know, you can't study the effect of a zoning change when you did the zoning change for the same effect that you, were, that you, you know, that, that you asked for. Mm-hmm. So uh-huh. um, you need zoning changes that are a bit independent of those things that are done more broadly. And that's what Chicago essentially did back in 2013. So do you want me to give you a sort of overview yeah, of what please, happened? Please tell us what happened. Yes. Right. So there was um, a sort of effort by Mayor Rahm Emanuel to say, uh, let's try to upzone, let's try to increase allowed density around our transit stations because um, for good reason, we think it's a good idea for more people to be living and working and shopping around our transit stations because you know, that's a, that's a way to reduce the amount of, uh, car use we have in our city. And it's a way to increase, uh, the sort of, uh, tax base of our cities. There are a lot of good reasons for that. So, uh, the city passed an ordinance, uh, in 2013 that did two primary things. One, it increased the allowed density for new construction in properties within 600 feet of transit stations And two, it reduced required parking minimums, which means that you didn't have to provide as much parking for uh, new construction that occurred around transit stations. Now, it's important to point out that this upzoning did not apply to residential-only zones. It applied to sort of mixed-use zones. Um, So that that may make it a little difficult to compare to some other upzonings. But it's a big enough area that I was able to study and then Chicago made a similar change in 2015 that sort of expanded the area to up to half a mile away from transit stations. So it's one thing to say there was an increase in density. Can you just give a subjective characterization of whether that was what you just described was a dramatic increase in density, a moderate increase in density, or a mild increase in density? I'm using salsa <laughs> flavorings. My... Yeah, well, I don't so know. Extra I mean, spicy, medium in... spicy, mild. <laughs> Maybe we should call in our relatives to find out what they think is a dramatic density increase. (laughs) Because, I mean, to be honest, much of the conversation in the U.S. today is about what is an acceptable amount of density to increase neighborhoods by, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. we have people saying that they don't want, you know, two flat apartments in a single-family home neighborhoods. Other might say we don't want 20-story towers in a... Uh, neighborhood of two-story buildings. Those are different types of density increases. And, you know, it's it's hard for me to say whether um, one type of density increase is is big or small, but I'm going to say this was sort of a a moderate scale increase. You could, depending on on the type of building you were building, you could build something like 15 to 30 to 50 percent larger building than you used to be able to under the previous rules. Gotcha. So, uh, and, and this may be silly, but I'm trying to still trying to wrap my head around this. And so, uh, a lot of these areas were they zoned for only single family homes, or were they zoned for maybe two, three story um, apartments? And then you could maybe build, uh, I don't know, uh, six after this. Or can you can you talk in those terms? Absolutely, yeah. So 
none of the areas that Chicago upzoned in this case were single family home neighborhoods before. So there's some places like Minneapolis that are changing the rules to allow people to build apartments in single family home neighborhoods. That's not the case in Chicago. That's not what was, that's not what occurred. What occurred was, um, parcels that were in what are, what in Chicago are called business commercial or downtown zones received an increase in density. And these um, are already areas where you could have previously built multifamily. Exactly. Exactly. And in many cases, um, these are, these are situations where you might see a three to five story building with like retail on the ground floor and apartments above, you might be able to increase that up to a five to seven story building. So that's kind of the change that we're talking about. And keep in mind, this isn't, you know, these are neighborhoods around transit stations in Chicago. We're not talking about, you know, uh, a suburban low density area. We're talking about this sort of center of a very large American region with a pretty strong transit system. So it's, you know, these areas are already used to, uh, for the most part, seeing relatively large buildings around their stations. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we talked about what happened. Tell us what you found. Right. So this is where my sort of presuppositions about what was happening in Chicago uh, sort of fell apart. Um, you know, as I said before, I was expecting there to be a a, a, a numerical a numerically quantifiable increase in construction around the transit stations because I saw new construction around transit stations. Unfortunately, when I conducted the analysis, when I did this, I found two things. One was the amount of construction going on in the upzoned areas was not statistically different than the amount of construction going on in the non-upzoned areas. This doesn't mean there was no construction happening. There was. It's just that it wasn't happening in a way that was particularly different than the areas that were not upzoned in terms of housing units. So this suggests that the upzoning process may not result in an immediate uptake in terms of new construction. My study does not say that over the long term, upzoning will not increase the amount of construction that occurs in general, but it does suggest that there's going to be this delay between when upzoning occurs and when construction begins. And that delay, at least in my example, did, lasted at least five years. So it's quite a quite a long time. So that's one finding. And then the other finding was looking at the property values of the areas that were upzoned. And that was uh, essentially trying to see whether the properties that got the upzoning ended up costing more, increased in value more than the properties that were not upzoned. And in this case, I found actually quite a significant increase in value in properties in general and also among existing housing units. And this increase occurred relatively quickly. It occurred within six months of the zoning changes. And uh, it was essentially equivalent to the increase in density that occurred on those parcels. So you got this sort of difficult situation where you, you conducted an upzoning and the short-term products of that upzoning were an increase in values, including housing values, and no new construction. And, and this is not a great result if we think <laughs> that upzoning is going to be a great way to encourage new construction immediately. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It, yes. And, uh-huh. and just to kind of um, extend that 
add a little bit. This would be the opposite of the intention behind a lot of the reforms that are currently being proposed. Yes. That said, it's worth pointing out a few things. One is that uh, people who promote uh, upzoning obviously are looking at the long term. And it's quite possible that the trends that I found over the short term are not going to happen over the long term. So that's one thing. Uh, and the other is that, um, you know, I, I think we should, we should always keep in mind the fact that every policy has positive and negative impacts. And people who are promoting upzoning don't necessarily think that other sorts of policies shouldn't be done at the same time as the upzoning. So I think what my study is really suggesting is that is not that upzoning is a problem, but rather that we need to think about multiple policies simultaneously in order to make upzoning as effective as possible. So give us some examples of other policies you would want you think should be included with with uh, with upzoning. Well, I think that the key you know, the key finding here is that construction did not occur quickly. And this is not, I'm not the first person to come up with this idea. I right. mean, I should be very clear about this. I'm not the first person to come up with the idea that construction takes a while to take off and that property values increase with the zoning. What I do do is really show that these things happen at the same time. And that's the problem in terms of displacement. So what we need to do is think about what are the policies we can undertake in the short term after or as upzoning occurs that will help to mediate the potential increases in prices while encouraging new construction. And I think that can occur in, we can do that in a, in a number of ways. One is we need to find if we can develop protections for especially vulnerable renters in areas that are being upzoned. Are there things we can do for the people who live there already that will ensure that they'll be able to stay in those neighborhoods even if the value of the properties go up? So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is how do we encourage more construction? How do we make sure that it's not just uh, speculation that occurs around uh, upzoning, but rather there's new construction that really occurs very quickly? And I think we can do that in two ways. Um, one is to immediately invest in new affordable housing in the areas that are being upzoned. So we're going to say we're planning to upzone these neighborhoods, but at the same time, we're investing massively in new affordable housing complexes that ensure that people who are vulnerable and who need access to affordable housing are going to be able to have that space. So that's one thing. And then the other is making sure that you have a a market of developers who are ready and able to get going as soon as you do the upzoning. So that means associating the zoning policy with a building policy from the start. We need we we can't afford to wait in the way that we saw in Chicago. Um, so I want to drill down on a, a couple things in here. One is one of the more interesting parts of your study. Um, was the fact that you weren't focused on just one specific neighborhood in Chicago, which would limit the, which would limit you in terms of the demographic and income characteristics of that neighborhood and of that property market, right? Yes. You, you looked at, there were multiple neighborhoods because of the nature of this policy experiment. Could you talk about that? And then could you, could you also talk about whether you saw different effects in different types of neighborhoods? Right. So I, I want to start out in response to you by saying that one of the things that my study does not do enough at all is the is the latter question that you asked about, which is, 
how do neighborhoods defer? How do neighborhoods act differently uh, in response to zoning changes? One of the problems is that even my study that was looking at parcels that were constructed all over Chicago or, were, or transacted all over Chicago, even that was not a large enough sample to really delve down into the neighborhood level effects. But I think we can expect that neighborhoods would act very differently in response to a zoning change. You know, I mean, um, you can expect that it might do different things in neighborhoods that are gentrifying versus neighborhoods that are not. So I think we need to do significant more study in 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 understanding this and i hope that in association with the zoning changes that are occurring in in some cities and states in the next few years there will be significant research associated with those things that said one thing that i do look at in the study is comparing the sort of construction reaction in downtown high-income neighborhoods and low-income neighborhoods. That was kind of the the sort of level of neighborhood disaggregation I was able to do in my study. And what I found was that the upzoning itself didn't produce any sort of market response to construction in any of the neighborhoods specifically, but especially it was ineffective in the low-income districts. It did nothing. Hmm. There was no response at all in these in these poor neighborhoods to um, to the zoning change in terms of construction, there was no additional developer interest. In, and in a city like Chicago, just, where there's such segregation and uh, differences in in uh, in income levels between different parts of the city, that means that zoning policy is not going to be the way you're going to encourage development to occur in those places. A bill that you may be aware of, um, you know, last year that attempted to to upzone significantly around transit stops uh, in the in the state. You know, the, the major concern was, well, folk, one of the major concerns was folks are going to go into low income neighborhoods. Developers are and, you know, continue to build or, or build much more, yeah, which yeah. would which would work at displacing um, folks at an even greater rate than may be happening right now. Uh, and that is, you know, and a lot of the same folks are pointing to your study as, an, as another reason why, uh, you know, not to do something similar. But it sounds like even that is a bit kind of uh, modeled. turned around than it, 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 it may appear on the surface. Well, I think one question for uh, the neighborhoods is whether there's a market right now for development in those neighborhoods. If there is, if there's an upzoning, I would expect that there would be speculation and there would be new construction of those neighborhoods. Ah. If those neighborhoods are suffering from systematic disinvestment, like too many of Chicago's neighborhoods are, where there's virtually no market and there's no development interest, then upzoning has essentially nothing to do with the market. Um, were you able at all to disaggregate, and yes, I just used disaggregate, the uh, property value question in terms of high income versus low income? Well, first of all, I should say that my study doesn't look at rents directly because I I, ask, there's uh, very, yeah, very little seen... good rent data. Rent data is yeah. terrible. Yeah. So I look at property transaction values, which we can some. We can see it to some degree as a proxy for housing costs. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I I think this is this is the the big point, right? Which is that this is one study of Chicago experiencing one zoning change that I only was really able to monitor for a few years. We need so many more. We need, we need to replicate this study and and conduct studies similar to it all over the country to really understand what is it that's happening with upzoning. What more can we learn from other places? Would, so would you advise localities or the state like California here, which is entertaining 
the idea of significant upzoning to do studies like that before moving ahead with these types of policy changes? I, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't think that the study should be used as a reason to not pursue a specific policy or another. I think it should be used as a cautionary tale about what about a concern that is raised by upzoning. And in my mind, the concern that's raised by upzoning is this short-term period that follows the upzoning where I'm worried about displacement because of rising costs of the properties. And, you know, this may not be replicated elsewhere, but what I do know is that I find sub, sub, you know, significant enough evidence here to suggest that it happened in Chicago. And so we need to associate similar, we need to associate uh, renter protection policies and anti-displacement policies with upzoning, or we may end up in the same situation again. Yeah. So you referenced this, you know, we keep talking about this sort of in the short term or this five-year period, right, where, where you didn't see any, any new construction. Do you have confidence that in a longer term period there would be new construction? No. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't think we have an answer to that. I mean, yeah. I, I'm saying that purely as like an a- academic researcher, yeah, right? Yeah, in this yeah, case, yeah, yeah. I'm responding saying I know what evidence I have and sure, the evidence sure, sure. is minimal. Sure. And it's impossible to know what the long-term situation is. I would say that um, the fact that there was an increase in values of properties right. among the parcels introduced suggests speculation, which means that people are willing to pay more. And the fact that people are willing to pay more suggests that in the future, they will also be willing to build more. But that's all I know. Uh, California is in the midst of, uh, for the second year in a, the row, a row, considering um, increasing uh, uh, you know, density around transit stops all across the state. Uh, do you have an opinion on whether that's something that the state should pursue? Well, you know, I've, I've, I understand SB 50 to, to some degree, and I don't want to, I don't, I'm not a Californian and I don't want to uh, endorse it or not endorsement. I don't feel that that's my place. But one thing that I, I think is really important to note is that unlike the bill that was presented previously, SB 50 does have a lot of the protections for uh, local renters that did not exist in the previous bill. And so those protections essentially suggest that uh, buildings that currently house renters would not be allowed to be demolished under the legislation and replaced. And it allows for a somewhat of a delay in potentially vulnerable communities right. in the implementation of this program. Right. So these two policies actually, I think, are going to go a long way in addressing my concerns that my study raises in Chicago. Because it's worth reminding everybody that Chicago didn't have any of these protections in association with the upzoning policy. But California, I think that, uh, you know, they have taken to heart the fact that upzoning is not just as, it's not going to occur sort of with one singular effect. It's going to have multiple effects in multiple neighborhoods, affect people differently, and it seems to be it seems to be designed in a way that's going to protect uh, low income renters, and I think that that is a very positive element of the upzoning process. Are you surprised by the amount of attention that this 
study has gotten. I mean, I, I was, you know, focused obviously a, a lot on looking at the Bay Area. You know, there was a coverage of a, of, a, of a public meeting where some planning commissioner got up and said, we should never upzone because this doctoral student from MIT says it's horrible. Yeah. I mean, are you are you surprised that something like this has kind of penetrated to the level of, of kind of semi-regular people um, that it seems to have? Well, uh, to some degree, I was surprised because, you know, I mean, this is not the first paper I've published and my other papers have not received this much interest uh, even close. So from that perspective, <laughs> yes, I was I was surprised. Certainly much, much of the academic discourse often gets ignored by the public. But I think what this is really revealing of is the fact that we have so little research on the effects of zoning change. We don't and, and by, by so little research, I mean we don't have very many causal studies that attempt to actually determine what the zoning change did on property values, on housing construction. And the fact is we've been relying on a lot of proxies to understand what is happening. And so I think people were reacting to the fact that suddenly I was able to provide them a study that has some real data about what actually happened. It's not it's – not, uh, uh, sort of rhetorical or or hearsay data. It's real data about what actually happened. This is incredibly informative. Uh, anything else you want to add, Yona, or want to make sure that our vast audience is aware uh, about the study? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the main thing I, I, I just want to rea- reaffirm is the necessity of additional research, the fact that I do not think we should take the conclusion of this study in any way to mean we should stop zoning policies or rezoning policies. I think it just means that we should be careful and and think seriously about people who might be displaced and take their concerns seriously, not dismiss them. All right. All right. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to Give Me Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, data and housing journalist with CalMatters. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReports. Uh, I'm Liam Dillon, LA Times, and my Twitter handle, Twitter handle is at Dillon Liam. And please rate and review the podcast if you can. And thank you for listening.